1: And welcome back to America's Heroes Group. This time is Roundtable. We are globally connected with Kaiser Health News. October is National Breast Cancer and Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And today is Saturday, October 30th, 2021. Our host is Cliff Kelly. I'm the co-host Sean Claiborne, U.S. Army National Guard veteran. Our executive producer is Glenda Smith. And our dig- digital media producer is Ivan Ortega of Scouts Honor Productions. And please join America's Heroes Group now on global live streaming on Facebook, our radio talk show is live on Facebook now. If you are not having clicked in or liked us on Facebook, go ahead and do that. Like and share so others will become connected to the information and resources that we provide. You can also listen to America's Heroes Group on the iHeartRadio app. Just search America's Heroes Group and watch us on digital TV, streaming on even Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, through our partner Zandra's TV Networks. That's Zondra, Z-O-N-D-R-A. You can search that on Roku and it'll pull us right up and you can start watching some of her past shows. And our past shows are on YouTube as well. So today we have another interesting topic that's going to take us to a lot of things. It's a long time coming for this type of legislation to pass. We have a panelist who you've heard her voice before in our show, Jenny Gold. She's a senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. How are you doing, Jenny?
2: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
1: We also have Gigi Crowder, the executive director of NAMI Contra Costa, California. That's the nation's largest mental health organization. That's the National Alliance of Mental Illness and Advocacy Group, funded by family members and people with mental illness. Uh, Gigi, how are you doing today?
0: I'm great. Thanks for having me.
1: All right. And then last but not least, Ernie Stevens, who is the subject of a HBO documentary, with his partner and that is the the uh, HBO documentary Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops okay Ernie's been a San Antonio police officer for 28 years and we're going to talk about that and also how that how we can deescalate certain situations and certain uh, issues when it comes to mental health and also the problems that come with mental health so first uh, Jenny uh, take us through the landmark legislation that came about last year about now the new number we all know about 911 but
2: what is nine eight eight? So nine eight eight is a lot like nine one one. It's going to work in a similar way. You can dial the number nine eight eight from any phone in the country, and it will connect you directly with a national suicide hotline. Right now, you have to call a ten digit a number that, if you're in a crisis, that can be hard to find or remember. This makes it really easy. You just call nine eight eight from any phone line. And you'll be able to talk to a trained professional who can speak to you about your mental health crisis. But in an ideal world, it doesn't end there. It's not just about who picks up the phone. It's also about what happens next. Right now, if you're in a mental health crisis and you call 911, often a police officer is sent out to assist you uh, and de-escalate the situation. And we know that that doesn't always end well um, about... uh, one in four people who are killed by police officers are uh, people with severe mental illness. Um, so we know this, this can be an issue. So the ideal of 988 is that instead of a police officer, when possible, trained mental health professionals will be sent out instead to help stabilize you and help make help you make it through the mental health crisis. And then connect you to follow-up services, connect you to a crisis center or other ways you can get care. Rather than going to jail,
1: and I think that's a groundbreaking news. That's groundbreaking legislation because oftentimes, as you mentioned, when people call nine one one, we've had a string of police shootings. But there's a statistic that came out from the the, uh, the, the, the Treatment of Advocacy Center dot org. People with mental illness are sixteen times more likely to be killed. You mentioned just now that one in four police uh, shootings involved some type of behavioral issue, or mental health crisis, things of that nature. Gigi, uh, tell us about your organization and also let us know some information, background information about how this legislation came about and what it does mean in the future. When does it actually start when we can start dialing 988 for certain situations?
0: Well, our earlier speaker might have more information about what's happening nationally, but here in California, after a unfortunate situation with a young man named Miles Hall in Walnut Creek, California, our affiliate, Mommy, has 600 affiliates, affiliates across the nation, got really involved because his mom had came to us seeking support. And too often, when individuals are seeking support, they can only use the option of calling law enforcement. So. We work with a local legislator, assembly member, Rebecca Byer-Cahan, after the untimely death of Miles, and we work with her, and she wanted to be the first. It didn't happen, but she wanted to be the first jurisdiction to make sure that there was an alternative number and that 988 and that it would have the cost centers, as mentioned earlier. So NAMI is largely an advocacy agency. We educate family members when they have a loved one who starts experiencing uh, symptoms or possible signs of mental illness, and then we also offer support to families. So I kind of took this personally since Mrs. Hall had come to us and we weren't able, although she'd done everything right by contacting her local law enforcement agency and let making them aware of Miles. She'd spoken to an officer who had worked with them in the press in the past, but still. You know, it did not work out the way we want it. So for the last 18 months, we've been working with the assembly member in her office to try and get our governor to sign this uh, bill. And hopefully it'll happen in the next session. Mm-hmm.
1: So this so I understand this. So this the legislation that was passed last year. And that's the National Suicide Hotline Designation Act of 2020. That is something that's going to roll out across the United States. But every state is going to roll it out slightly differently. Is that correct? Is that, am I getting that correct, uh, Jenny? Uh, and Jenny
2: That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Each state has to pass its own funding legislation, has to set up 988 and figure out exactly how this global crisis response system is going to work. So it's going to really vary by state and possibly even more locally. It could vary a little bit by county as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, Ernie, um, you're, I really want to talk to you also because the, you are actually a police officer in the San Antonio area. You've been a police officer for 28 years, and you're the subject of the documentary on HBO. Now, this eight, this documentary has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, won the Grand Jury Prize at the uh, inter, at the Independent Film Festival in Boston, Best Documentary for the Townsend Film Festival, Jury Award for Best uh, Documentary Feature. That was at the Santa Fe Independent Film Festival. So in your career and your work, tell us the challenges of being called out on a 911 call because the title of the documentary is Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. So we don't think of our, of our police officers typically as crisis cops or people who are crisis solvers or mental health people. We think of them typically as just people that are there to protect and serve and help us when we're in a bad situation. Oftentimes, however, as we mentioned earlier, things don't go well. Things don't go right. Sometimes people get hurt or get killed. So tell, uh, give us some insight into your job every day and also what your thoughts are on and on what this whole thing means. Yeah, so of course
3: we all know, you know, we've watched and paid close attention to what's going on in the criminal justice world. Uh, the role of the police officer has changed. Uh, they are becoming uh, crisis response officers uh, to deal with mental health crises that happen out in the community. Uh, there's days back because of uh, deinstitutionalization. Um, many, many individuals that were very, very sick were released from the state hospitals into the community, and the community did not have the infrastructure to support them. Uh, so now these crises happen out in the community. Uh, people that don't understand mental health or mental illness are confused by of so many behaviors, and they call 911. Well, when that happens, you get a police response. The problem with that is a lot of police departments across the nation have not received crisis intervention training, which is how do you? recognize a mental health crisis and then how to de-escalate it and those that have received the training a lot of the training is decentralized so no one department does it the same way because of the resources that are available within that community so the challenge is real Uh, the expectations from the community is for a different type of response that's why you're seeing legislation like 988 passed and i believe if i'm not mistaken it goes into effect july of 2022
1: hmm. So then that's groundbreaking to me because it's now you have an actual hotline that you can call when someone is, is having an issue or having a mental breakdown. And this affects not just veterans. We're not just talking about people that suffer from PTSD. This is something that affects pretty much every facet of every community of people that oh, have mental health issues all across the United States. It has there's no boundary that mental health issues don't uh, cross. It doesn't matter what your race is, your gender, your sexual orientation. It affects everybody. And we have a tons of stories that go back decades and, and centuries, even if you want to go that far, With where things have happened where um, law enforcement has been called in to take care of a situation that they're not necessarily trained for. So, Jenny, can you talk a little bit more about um, the importance of the crisis teams and how that came about and what that is?
2: So, yeah, that's right. I, I, I misspoke slightly. It's, it's that 25 percent of all officers are involved Shootings are for people in mental health crisis, not, not killings. But, but still, this, this is seriously, a, you know, a real issue. And um, as Didi mentioned earlier, a story of a young man in Walnut Creek uh, whose family says he had schizoaffective disorder, I believe. And, and he was killed in an officer-involved shooting. So, you know, it's, uh, police officers have a lot of responsibilities. They do a lot of things. And they're not trained mental health professionals. They're busy. And this is not what they're trained to do. They're not trained to de-escalate people who are in a crisis, having a psychotic break, who are severely suicidal. The idea here is that you should be sending out people who are specifically trained to deal with these situations. And it's not easy, and there will still be situations where there is some danger and hostility involved, and a police officer will still have to be dispatched. But the hope is that there, that will be in addition to a trained mental health professional and possibly a medic. And these are people who can help, um, rather than shoot or create a, a, a more escalated situation, can actually help calm the situation down, hopefully remove the risk that someone would commit suicide in that moment and connect them to follow-up care. That might mean private, you know, weekly behavioral health visits. It might mean taking them to a hospital if it's a serious crisis. It might mean taking them to a crisis center where they can get 48 hours of care, get them back on track, and then allow them to be part of an outpatient system. It's about connecting people to other levels of care to get them help. But there's sort of a flaw here in this whole thing, which is that we know nationally we have a huge problem with our mental health system. Mm-hmm. There's just a huge shortage of beds, shortage of providers, shortage of crisis stabilization units. So, along with just having this phone number and sending mental health crisis teams, you know, the states and the, the country as a whole really needs to look at what else we need to add to fill in those gaps, making sure that services are available to people who have had a crisis.
1: And then G.J. leads me to our next question because um, you touched on a very powerful point, is the fact that you also have, um, we, we can talk about funding in a minute, but also access to mental health care. Um, so possibly what I see as a potential, and the reason why I think this is a huge game changer in, in our country, uh, not just in individual states, but at the countrywide level. This imagine if Quan McDonald had access to a nine eight eight number, because you can actually call this numbers not just at the crisis moment, but someone from understand in many different states that this being rolled out, they can call this number as their as the situation is escalating. So a person might be suicidal or have certain types of ideation about maybe killing themselves or hurting someone else. Am I, true, am I right or wrong if they can actually use this resource, to actually get help or try to seek help when they, when they have red flags going up? That, did you,
0: actually, yeah, that's, a, that's precisely why we pushed so hard for AB 988. It's because there was another unfortunate situation in Antioch, California, and the young sister of Angelo Quito said, was there another number I could have called? Versus 911, and that reminded me of how important the 988 number is. There was no weapons involved, there was no need for it to be law enforcement. He was holding on tightly to his mom, but had a therapist, had maybe perhaps even a family member or a peer shown up, or an EMS worker, then perhaps we would have had a better outcome. We in Contra Costa County actually responded to the community's outcry for a much more um, compassionate approach to um, medical emergency because having a mental illness is a medical condition. And so we would prefer to have EMS. And as uh, was mentioned earlier, we recognize that there will often be times where law enforcement need to come out, but in working with law enforcement, and Ernie can speak to this, we kind of identified only two reasons. If it's imminent danger or there's uh, the, of someone's life being uh, lost or if the individual has a weapon, a deadly weapon. So those are the only two reasons you would need. We have the culture of police officers responding because they have a faster response time. Mm-hmm. That's the reason. And so what we would like to see happen is a triage situation in the call center. Sometimes when family members call us at NAMI, we recognize it's not an emergency, but perhaps that family member needs to better understand mental illness. So we talk with them. When it's the individual and they are indeed in a crisis situa- situation, sometimes we can talk to them and give them resources in the community, and they can come in and speak with someone, but uh, work that really needs to happen is a more immediate response. So we can tell someone also that they can go to a drop-in center. So we're also looking at alternatives to psych emergency services because of them being so heavily burdened with individuals. Often when a person, when a police officer deems the individual to meet the criteria of danger to self, others are gravely ill, they're released within two to three hours because there's no space for them. So Mm -hmm. if we had other preventative approaches versus always reacting, waiting until there's a fail first, Approach family members hate to wait back and sit back and wait and see the signs of increased psychosis. They'd rather get services earlier on individuals who live with mental illness lose large pieces of their lives Sometimes just because they couldn't get their meds on time. So oh. we're hoping, you know, through AB 988 there's other opportunities to support individuals. So more individuals living with mental illness can have a better quality of life. We may also be able to address some of the issues we're seeing around supporting those who are unsheltered because they live with mental illness.
1: And that's, my, and that's what I can – I see that kind of path, that kind of trajectory going. Because with, with this being launched, it seems like the next logical step might be some awareness around mental health issues. And let's reports about, you know, un, unfortunate police shootings. and maybe possibly more stories about the actual impact of mental health and mental health uh, uh, severities around the country. Ernie, so in your job, when you go to, to, a, to a, get a call and you have to go out to a, a home or to a site and there is a situation that, that is a crisis, can you walk us through that experience and also what is what are some of your methods of de-escalating a situation so that it doesn't end tragically?
3: Yeah, so in San Antonio now, we have actually evolved into a multidisciplinary response team, which means that you're going to have an officer riding with a social worker or clinician uh, teamed also with a medic so you're going to get a, a, a three-pronged approach to this to this crisis the officer their lane of traffic really is just to provide safety in addition to statutory law which will give them the ability to do the involunt- involuntary commitment if the social worker um, or the doctor that is going to be staffed with on the phone deem that there's an immediate danger to this individual or to somebody else so by law, the officer is the one that has to fill out the paperwork here in Texas in order to do the transport to the facility. But once the officer knows that the the scene is is safe, really that point they are removed from this scenario, and the uh, social worker and the medic step in and start their assessment. You know, part of the part of the way that we will try to de-escalate these calls or these crises out in the field, if we get to a call and somebody's still in a very manic. Or acute state of psychosis, um, you know one of the one of the methods we use one of the methods we use is active listening, and it's a class that is has a foundational course with the FBI. We've adopted the same uh, format here, and use approaches of sympathy and empathy. And if you look at the documentary, that's exactly what we're trying to do when we when we meet with somebody in a crisis. We're trying to make a connection and focus on the person and not the problem. And if you can do that, then you're trying to focus on connection over correction. And if you use that type of approach, you can use that de-escalation skill and then allow the social worker to come in, do the assessment, and then provide the follow-up on the back end so they don't fall through the cracks with continuity of care.
1: Now, can you ask, I'm asking this against you, Ernie, so do you, is that kind of, is that a typical model in most states? I don't think that's, that's I haven't heard that model before. Is that something that is is common or is that something that you guys in uh, Texas have kind of pioneered as far as trying to tackle these type of mental health issues?
3: Yeah, so there's different approaches. Out in Eugene, Oregon, you've had CAHOOTS, which has been around since the 80s, and that's a clinician paired with a paramedic, and there's no police involvement at all with that response. Uh, Other departments, I was just in Indianapolis last week for a police social worker conference where police departments are beginning to embed social workers within their department to help follow up on these mental health calls. So you're seeing hybrid um, type of teams put together, but multidisciplinary is definitely, I think, a a better approach than just sending an officer out to a call that he's really or she's really not equipped to handle.
1: Now, this is a question for all three of you guys, because um, starting with starting with the journey, then Gigi, then Ernie. Um, the reason why is because Ernie, you mentioned earlier, and this is something we we've, um, we've seen. If you've been following mental health issues you know, in the last 20 years or so, there has been a, um, a push across the country to deinstitutionalize um, um, these counties all across the United States and get rid of a lot of mental health clinics. And which we've seen the aftermath of that. We've seen an uptick in a lot of uh, um, violence and, and, and situations where people with mental health issues are caught in very bad situations and, and get into a situation where they're a threat to themselves and possibly might even be a threat to someone else around them. So what happened in the last 20, 30 years or so that caused a lot of these health clinics around the country to shut down, particularly in the cities?
2: When you say clinics, I think maybe what you're talking about are the state hospitals, which okay. was sort of what really shut down as part of the de- deinstitutionalization movement. Yeah. We lost a lot of inpatient hospital beds at the, that point, and it was sort of a well-intentioned effort. The idea was to treat people instead of in hospitals, um, which which in some cases um, were mistreating patients, um, to treat them at, in the lowest possible setting, so in a, in a, in a clinic or an outpatient setting, somewhere where people could really be out in the community living in their homes um, rather than being, as they called it, warehoused in hospitals. Um, but you know, what we've learned over the decades is that we now have a shortage of those hospital beds, that there are people who really need inpatient stays, not necessarily for life, but for some extended period. Um, and right now, you know, we, we have a huge shortage. So if you need an inpatient stay, you often have to wait a very long time to get a bed. And unfortunately, that promise that there would be outpatient care for people, well, it wasn't really upheld in a lot of places. And we, are, we have a shortage of those sorts of outpatient services for people. And the result is that a lot of people fell through the cracks. You see a lot of people who are unhoused who have serious mental illness. Another thing you see, which is is, is really tragic, is that jails have actually, and prisons have actually become the largest providers of mental health care in the country. A lot of people who might otherwise have been treated in an inpatient um, hospital or, or in a better outpatient situation have ended up in jail
1: instead. Hmm. That's an important uh, point. You said jails have become the most the largest housing, uh, uh, facilitator for housing people with mental health issues. That's crazy. It's, I mean, I mean, not the no pun intended, yeah. but that's nuts. Just <laughs> that's, that's bananas. Yeah. So, Gigi, tell it's me. Tragedy. Yeah, it's a tragedy, but it's but it's, it's it's bonkers to think the fact that we would that you're exacerbating the problem. Even though it's well intentioned, it might have been that like you exacerbated the problem either worse by um, by shutting down certain facilities. Uh, uh, we have a, a little bit of time left, so I'm gonna kind of jump to my next question, uh, which is based on the last question. And this is for Gigi and also Ernie too. Is going down the line. So we, when you start talking about um, the hotline and how it can actually open up awareness for mental health issues, there's also a lot of talk about how the funding of through the legislation, how the funding of uh, of different crisis uh, of um, uh, clinics and, and different organizations around the country, how they get funding might that might this might actually help funding and help the uh, money from the federal level get down to the state level, so we can actually do more in the mental, mental health arena.
0: Exactly. We in uh, Contra Costa County just measured, just uh, had a measure X, which is a health and sales tax. And it was no surprise to me that the um, Community Advisory Board decided they wanted to fund our call center. That's because mental illness impacts one in four now. It's just be one in five, it's one in four individuals. So because it does, people understand we have to have a, and COVID may have helped with this. us have the conversations about it because we are criminalizing individuals for living with a mental illness and we can see the disparities that some communities are criminalized more for it so we're pushing toward the funding that comes from assembly bill 109 we're pushing for the funding that comes from local jurisdictions prioritizing where the greatest need is so I'm not a big champion for defunding the police, but I am for reprioritizing where funding is spent. And if you actually invest more in prevention services, you won't have such a heavy reliance on law enforcement. Let them get back to protecting and serving and responding when I have a broken, when I have a stolen car, but now they can't. And and what we learned in our county was that when they go out to a 5150, they actually only deem the person to meet the criteria about 35% of the time. So that's pretty wasteful. So a lot of cities are looking at more appropriate responses and, um, and, and pushing for specific funding to support their cities to have a better non non police response to
1: mental illness and I think we're going in the right direction with that Mm -hmm. and Ernie also your your, uh, thoughts on this because specific specifically because you work in a mental health unit for the police department in San Antonio which is a major city major metropolitan area a lot of issues and things that that you find in urban areas Um, do you see this as a good thing Uh, what are your thoughts on the on the whole rollout the whole process what would you like to see added to it if anything and you have about one minute about 30 seconds to a minute in order to respond
3: Sure, I'll wrap this up as best I can. So 988, of course, is going to help with the federal funding. Texas voted against the Medicaid expansion, and that just that drove a nail in the coffin when it came to trying to provide more mental health services to our community. So this is going to be a game changer. Uh, what I like about San Antonio and Bexar County is the collaboration that takes place between all the stakeholders in the community. They all chip in. Uh, they put in money. They help build these multidisciplinary teams. They meet the patient before the crisis call even comes in on 911 by pre-engaging them because they already know who they are. So we're out there. We're knocking on the doors. Uh, We're trying to find out where you need assistance uh, so you don't end up in the hospital time and time again because that is just not the, the fix to this situation. True quality
1: of care and treatment are what these individuals need and what we're trying to provide. I appreciate your time, Ernie, Gigi, Jenny. Thanks for your support, and also I wish you guys well and have a safe trip wherever you're going tonight. And be safe and be healthy and be happy. This is America's Heroes Group. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to America's Heroes Group podcast. Don't forget to
0: subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And for more details, visit
3: AmericasHG.org.